0: Testing, testing. Hey guys, it's Will and Keith. I'm
1: Keith. And I'm Will. And I'm Will. And I'm will. Oh God. <laughs> oh, you are. Amazing. <laughs> this podcast is amazing. The, the microphone just, just set itself on fire. I love this podcast already. <laughs> will and Keith embrace the
0: process. <laughs> I will bite the bullet and be a man and say, we already recorded this episode, episode four. We did a full recording session. <laughs> For about an hour and 40 minutes, outdoors, in the cold, because at that moment we were supposed to be isolating from each other. It was nightmarish. It was very difficult. The sun was in my eyes. It was freezing. We were bundled up, but not bundled up enough. Uh, We recorded for an hour and 40 minutes, and I somehow deleted that file.
1: By the end of the session, I was in physical pain and mental distress.
0: (laughs) And it was all for nothing. And I didn't even realize until a couple days later that I had uh, deleted everything and we would have to start all over again. So uh, I am an incompetent technician. Actually, this reminds me. Let's check to see if we're recording. Testing. (laughs) Okay, well, it looks like we're recording, but then again, it looked like that last time, so we we might be screwed.
1: Well, as I often like to say on this podcast... Take two. Take two. That's right. <laughs> that's basically that's our motto. M- that's my catchphrase.
0: Uh, so today we're going to be doing some of the stuff that we already did last time and uh, that I uh, destroyed forever, and we're also going to be doing some stuff that we did not get to last time. So here is the the rough outline of what we're going to do. First off, lay it on them, Keith. Yeah, this is it. I'm about to. First off, Mr. We'll Mr. Do it Clark, <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it live. Is that the reference? Yeah, we'll we'll do it. Pre-recorded, but live. Uh, so, the first off, you're going to honor us. No, no, sorry. First off, I
1: am going to read a short story. Yeah, so we had talked about this on the first episode that we thought, or was it the second? I think it was the second. Yeah, the second episode that we thought it would be fun to sort of do a little song and dance for each other. And today yeah. is that day.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of, a lot of what this podcast is about is um, our own uh creative endeavors and uh how they relate maybe to the the media that we are consuming uh and so we thought it'd be cool to present some of our own work so i'm going to read a short story and then uh will you're going to do a song for us that you
1: wrote i am i'm very excited about that that's going to be the highlight you guys and i decided to do one that you haven't heard i I almost was so (laughs) so cowardly that i was going to pick one that that we've Played together. I'm always happy to hear Have Around, but I would rather hear
0: something new. Uh, great. So then we're going to do uh, so story and then song. After that, we will be discussing uh, an Australian sketch comedy series on Netflix called uh, Auntie Donna's Big Ol' House of Fun. That's something that we teased in our last episode. We we're going to get to that discussion. Uh, following that, if we have time, we're going to get into The Queen's Gambit, which is a show that was enormously on the cultural radar about a month ago,
1: and we're just getting to it now. Well, maybe, you know, it's like uh, this is, could be our thing. Yeah. <laughs> Coming slightly late to the party and seeing if there are any orders. We're missing the pulse. Yeah. We keep thinking that, that society is culturally dead, but it's just because we got there too late. Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, I
0: prefer to miss the party by at least 50 years. Like, um, you know, the book that I'm reading right now was written in 1942. That's about right for me. Uh, but I'm willing to miss the party by just a short amount of time. For occasionally,
1: for you, the listener, that's right. He's he's
0: upending his life. <laughs> I am even willing to watch a show that came out this year <laughs> every once in a while. uh Great, and then that's pretty much our episode. And then the the last segment will just be giving each other new uh, homework assignments, taking us into episode five. That you know,
1: I think this show today sounds great. I'm very excited to Good. do it.
0: I'm excited as well. Should we get into it?
1: So we have uh, Keith Boynton in the studio today. He, yes, it's good to be here. He is a, 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 a highly, <laughs> <laughs> highly respected thank you. writer, especially in, in my personal sphere of, of uh, influence. I am highly respected by six people, all of whom we are both related to. This, this is well, a, not both related to. <laughs> That would be weird. (laughs) This ain't no Appalachian podcast. (laughs) No offense
0: to Appalachian. There's anything wrong with Appalachian podcasts. We love them. If they ever get podcasts there, they're going to be great.
1: So, Keith, what what, uh, will you be uh, delighting us with? Yeah, so uh, I would love to read something
0: that's fresh and new and hot off the presses. Unfortunately, I just haven't been writing very much. Uh, I did start a new screenplay about a week ago, and made decent progress, and then haven't picked it up since. But uh, screenplays, as I mentioned to you, are terrible to read out loud, so I will be going back a little bit farther in time. I'm going to read a short story that I wrote in October as part of that month-long celebration of Halloween uh, book club that I was doing with my brother. Oh, so is it a scary story? Uh, That's the intention. Okay. The intention is for it to be a scary story, kind of Halloween-themed. Uh, I don't actually write a lot of short stories. I haven't tried to write one in a long, 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 long time. But we were reading a ton of short stories, specifically spooky ones, and I was kind of inspired to give it a stab. Uh, so here it is. This is my, my version of a spooky Halloween story two months late. What's the title? The title is The Churchyard. The moon had been lost hours ago in a thick pall of suffocating cloud. Edward held the lamp high, casting a red glow over the yawning grave. Below him, the two men labored and sweated, flinging up dirt that vanished in the dark. It was cold in the churchyard. A raw wind howled out of the north. Above him, the bare branches creaked and snapped in the breeze, and somewhere far off in the valley, a lone dog bayed against the demon night. Edward shuddered and tightened the cloak about his neck. There were stories about this place. Edward tried not to think of them. It was said, and half believed in the district, that on moonless autumn nights the dead would stir in their graves and rise up to take the air. The faithful swore that they rose only to avenge some dreadful sin, a murder, a betrayal, a blasphemy, a fratricide. But who is without sin, whispered others, less certain, perhaps, of the benevolence of God's world. Let that man walk in that churchyard late at night. Let him brave the houses of the dead if he chooses, me for the tavern and my bed before middle night. At last, with a scraping crunch that Edward felt in his teeth, one of the shovels found the lid of the coffin. Sensing an end to their efforts, the men below quickened their pace. They cleared the dirt from the coffin's lid, tied a thick rope to its iron handle, and helped each other to climb free of the grave. Edward set his lamp aside and took hold of the rope along with the others. Heaving with all their strength, they jerked one end of the coffin loose. It cost them a feverish effort to drag the heavy oaken box up to level ground, but at last it lay before them, dark and dirt-encrusted, with the black womb that had borne it gaping behind like a toothless mouth. They looked at it, breathing heavily, their breath a warm white wraith in the lamplight. For long black moments they were still, and the world was still. It was Edward's father that broke the silence. Pass me that crowbar, boy. One moment, Simeon, this time it was the priest who spoke. He knelt down in the dirt, held his little cross to his lips, and muttered a quick prayer. Edward handed the crowbar to his father, and with a few quick jerks, he pried the lid free. A smell rose up from the coffin, a stench of long, slow, lightless decay. Edward stepped back, repulsed, but curiosity drew him forward again. His father took a deep, steadying breath and threw back the lid. It was a body, but it was not Sarah's. A black-stained mass of matted fur lay in the coffin, legs folded, broken and pitiful. Edward sucked in his breath, and tears came into his eyes. Reverend Shaw looked at Edward's father. Yours? he asked softly. Simeon Barrett nodded. Aye, that's Tippet." I'm sorry, boy. I know you were fond of him. Edward fought back the tears, willing himself to be stoic and calm. After all, it was Sarah they were concerned with. It was she they had come seeking there in the cold and starless night. "'Sarah was not in the coffin. "'Sarah might yet be alive. "'I owe you an apology, Simeon,' the reverend was saying. "'When Lauren Teague came to me with the coffin "'and said he had found your Sarah dead when he went calling, "'I took the man at his word. "'The devil's in those Teague men, I know it, "'but in my innocence I never conceived. It isn't your fault, Jonas. "'I ought never to have let her alone on that farm. "'Ought to have left the boy with her leastways. "'But that's all past and beyond all mending. "'The main thing is, we know now that Teague lied.' Edward looked at his father. "'What's he done with her, sir?' Simeon Barrett's jaw tightened beneath the skin. "'It don't bear thinking on.' They were silent then, a chill wind soughing through the hush. Below the wind, a dry, shuffling noise rose up at the edge of hearing. No doubt it was only the dead leaves stirring among the gravestones, but to Edward's ear it summoned up all the legends of this haunted place, the unrestful dead clawing their way up from out of the earth's bosom, silent and terrible, fingers itching for the feel of living flesh. Edward shivered and buried himself in his cloak. A loud snap only a dozen yards off made all three of them jump. "'Who's there?' called Edward's father. His voice was clear and booming, but there was a hoarseness in it that made Edward's heart beat faster still. Edward held up the lantern, but its flickering light only seemed to deepen the shadows. Out there in the icy blackness, the shuffling had grown louder. Shapes moved at the limit of his vision, Dark things that crowded forward with queer, sidling steps. Father tightened his grip on the shovel. They had brought no gun. Yet even had the three of them been armed and ready, what victory could a living man hope to achieve over the shambling dead? A pale face rose up out of the shadows, ghastly and thin in the trembling lamplight. Pale lips curled into a mockery of a smile. Edward held his breath. He knew that face. This was no dead man come to harry them. This was Lauren Teague. Teague stopped a few paces away. A greeting to you, Simeon, he said mildly. Behind him, other men emerged from the knight's bosom. Paul Teague, Lauren's brother, and Amos Teague, their cousin, and mad Dabney Russert, who had married a Teague girl. There were others lurking back in the shadows, half seen at the edge of the lamplight. They were eight or ten men in all. What have you done with my daughter, Teague? Father's voice came thick, choked with fury. The shovel hung at his side, an unspoken threat. Lauren Teague smiled. It was the ugliest thing Edward had ever seen. "'It ain't what I've done, Simeon. It's what I'm going to do. Your girl and I are engaged to be married. We ride for Pomeret Sunday morning. The priest there knows me, and he knows I'm to be obliged. It grieves me sore that you won't make it to the wedding. You have my word, though. I'll take good care of the girl.' Father tightened his grip on the shovel. God damn you, Teague.' The other man grinned, showing a mouth of jagged teeth. God smiles upon me, Simeon. He always has. Lauren T. gave a signal, and his men came forward, raising rifles and shotguns. With a sudden jerk of his arm, Father dashed the lantern from Edward's hand. It shattered on the half-frozen ground, plunging them into darkness. A shot rang out, lonely against the vastness of night. With a cry, Father surged forward to attack. What happened then would haunt Edward for the rest of his life. A hideous noise of rending and wrenching rose up about them, drowning out all thought. Strange cries and wails and howls clove the night. Men screamed and the screams were silenced. Guns were fired and then fell silent too. Snappings and grindings and horrible wet squelches followed, making Edward feel sick. He found himself clinging to his father and found, to his horror and consternation, that his father was clinging back. Then it was done. The wind wove through the high branches above them. A vague shuffling as of a million leaves falling at once filled the night, then silence reigned again. With uncanny swiftness, the moon broke free of its veil of cloud. Edward saw that it was not his father, but Reverend Shaw that he was clinging to. They pulled apart with an embarrassed movement and turned to survey the scene before them. The bodies of the Teague men were strewn about like discarded dolls. They had been torn and twisted in a dozen nauseating ways, Stray limbs lay here and there like toys in a child's untidy room. Some of the bodies bore the marks of teeth. Simeon Barrett knelt amidst the carnage, stroking the dead dog Tippet with gentle fingers. Good boy, he was saying softly. Good boy. He lifted Tippett, cradling him tenderly, and laid him down in his coffin to rest. In silence, by moonlight, the three of them lowered the coffin into the grave and piled the dirt back on top of it. The other graves appeared undisturbed, but Edward knew better. Dead men had walked that night, walked, and killed. The Teague men were buried in a hollow, far from the church. The churchyard is for the righteous, opined Reverend Shaw. God's dead look after God's children, and the wrath of God is fearsome to behold. That's it. That's the story. Nice one. Thank you. I liked it. It's funny how much easier it is to read your own writing out loud. I've been reading out loud to my mom every night Sherlock Holmes stories, which I love. Oh. But it's way, way easier to read something that you've written. Uh, I, when I read the Sherlock Holmes stuff, I
1: stumble a fair amount and I have to backtrack and correct myself. I'm sure the language is, is could be pretty complicated in, in those older books as well.
0: Yeah, it is a
1: little I mean, for unfamiliar. me, very much so. For you, maybe not so Well, I've
0: read a decent amount of Victorian uh, fiction But, yeah, there are still constructions that are strange. and Even just the difference between British and American English, especially with regard to punctuation, um, can definitely trip you up. Have
1: you read the the old Winnie the Pooh writing? Not recently. Uh, Before a, a trip to Virginia a year or two ago, Ali picked up a copy of an old Winnie the Pooh book, and it's so difficult to read. Really? It's... Uh, I don't know, you'll check it out sometime, we'll let me know what you think. Uh, you're, you're, you're well literate <laughs> compared to the both of us. But um. I mean, I just like old
0: English literature uh, is, the main, is the main thing. You know, A.A. A. Milne, by the way, who wrote Winnie the Pooh, also wrote a uh, very well-regarded mystery novel. Hmm. He wrote only one. It's called The Red House Mystery, uh, and it's considered something of a classic. Uh, and I've read it, actually. It's quite good.
1: Cool. That's interesting.
0: Yeah. Kind of a random thing.
1: Huh. Fun fact. Well, you never know where people will, you know, what uh, what they'll excel at or what will become successful, not always what maybe they're most interested in.
0: It's very true. Well, in Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes would be a good example of that. He wrote all kinds of stuff. He wrote historical fiction and adventure fiction and even sort of science fiction, um, and there was a point in his life when he really resented just being the Sherlock Holmes guy and people were constantly (laughs) expecting him to turn out more stories. At one point he killed Sherlock Holmes because he was sick of writing those stories. And then there was so much pressure, including, I think maybe from his mother, uh, that he had to bring him back. Wow. (laughs) Which is a, which is a great, I mean, he had left the door open. He had deliberately, sorry, spoilers for uh, fiction circuit, 1892. Um, he comes back. He does come back. <laughs> Doyle had given himself an out there. He didn't. He didn't have Holmes die in a in a really uh, conclusive way.
1: He had him kind of plunge over. It was like some guy way. showed up with a coffin, and he was like, "He's in there, I, I swear."
0: I don't look, but uh, it's
1: not a dog. It's definitely him.
0: <laughs> anyway, that's my little story.
1: Actually, I read. I read some of uh, your. Your novel draft that you passed on to me. Oh, cool. Um, not all of it. I, I, it's hard to tell how much because I, I was reading it in iBooks, which changes the number of pages uh, depending on how big your window is. Right. So it's impossible. But um, I'm enjoying reading that also. Oh, thank you. Um, I like, I'm actually really proud of that. But this is
0: a novel called Sword Book Beast that I finished a draft of uh, around mid August. So it's the last kind of major, just filling our audience in, it's the last kind of major writing project that I had. Um, and I am really proud of that. Um, and, and only one person, I think, has read it in its entirety so far, that being my mother.
2: Mm.
0: But she, she loved it. Well, That sounds trivial when I say <laughs> my mom loved it. But if you know my mom, you know it's not trivial. Like, it actually does mean something.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, just, just uh, the, the, the language that you're able to use is very impressive to me. Um, Thank you. It, it, in that book and, and in this, the, the sort of the context that you build using, you know, sort of old-timey lingo or sort of whimsical words that, you know, people wouldn't say to each other hmm. um, nowadays uh, really paints paint, paints a picture um, and maybe maybe it really stands out to me because I don't read as much and I don't read old old things
0: yeah that's probably the big difference between us is I'm kind of steeped in literature that's antique to one degree or not, not to say I'm an expert I'm definitely
1: not um, but I do like things that that trend towards yeah. uh, antiquity most of, mostly everything I've read in the past handful of years has been sci-fi mm-hmm. and so there's not a whole lot of uh, English play in that, mm. really, you know?
0: Yeah, it's oftentimes the prose in sci-fi is pretty serviceable, pretty utilitarian.
1: Yeah. Uh, which just, is not a bad
0: thing. I mean, it serves what they're trying to do. Yeah. Obviously, there are science fiction writers who are more a little bit more literary or self-consciously literary.
1: So, uh, do you know the show Serenity? No. I think that's the name of the show. That's the name oh, of the wait. ship. The show Firefly. Yeah, that's oh, yeah, 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 The yeah. movie, the movie they, the made movie was Serenity, films.
0: Yes, I love Firefly. That's one of my favorite shows.
1: Not one of my favorite.
0: Oh, all right, controversy.
1: And actually, one of the things that I don't like about it is is their like colloquial speech. Oh, interesting. It's I I I just I just have no room for it in my sci-fi world. So what they're Trying to do
0: there, it's it's very deliberately a space western.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of space
0: opera is kind of western influenced, like Star Wars, for example. But Firefly is really leaning yeah. into that element, really yeah. trying to make you feel like it's a western in space. Yeah.
1: I'm just out here tilling these spaceships, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, that's a famous line. The, the no, Pirates, I took
0: that so. straight from the one of one of Joss Whedon's best. Really, <laughs> uh, for me, that that really works. You know, for me. Joss Whedon's great strength as a writer, of dialogue especially, is a feel for...
1: Oh, I didn't know that he had
0: wrote that. Yeah, that's his show. Uh, it's the show that he did after Buffy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and uh, I think it's probably the purest expression of what, what Joss Whedon's... I mean, I, I'm sure he would disagree. But it feels to me like the purest expression of Joss Whedon's vision. Mm-hmm. And of course it was cancelled after half a season.
1: Really? Yeah. Wow. I it mean, was I watched after
0: half a season. Wow.
1: I watched everything I could find of it and I watched the movie. And I didn't hate it. I just it just wasn't really that bit wasn't really doing it for me.
0: I mean, as a cultural phenomenon, it's definitely interesting because it is a failed television show that has a large enough and devoted enough following that they made a feature film yeah uh which I think is completely unprecedented I can't it wasn't, even... it wasn't cheap I mean that movie I think cost about fifty million dollars which is cheap for a sci-fi a sci-fi movie you know for a space opera but it's not cheap yeah no um so and and people still talk about firefly people still go to conventions and I can't play some believe characters you. from this failed half season fox show yeah
1: I never thought that it would have only been for a half season I, yeah. I didn't pay a ton of attention to it um in terms of Wondering how much more was out there. I just remember finding it and watching it, and then just sort of moving on. But yeah, it's so well known. Yeah, it's for and for only being half a season. And of course, Fox. I feel like they're the they're known to sort of pull the plug. On. I mean, Arrested Development is one of another example of things that Fox pulled yeah. the plug on that is like a huge cultural <laughs> I mean it's pretty
0: sa- I think Fox especially was the wrong network for that show but it's yeah. pretty sad that it didn't come along just ten years later uh, I feel like if Josh Whedon had pitched that show to Netflix or Amazon or Hulu he could have easily done seven seasons
1: it would still be going right now it would be going now absolutely
0: uh, it, it was so much the kind of thing that people would get into now right it's geeky it creates its own world uh, you know, it's it's fun and fresh and original and uh, that's not really what Fox is looking for, but it is what Netflix is looking for. Yeah. Um, so that's very sad. Uh,
1: so, have you written other uh, spooky stories in general? or No, although I've been getting more interested in horror as a cinematic genre
0: partly because there's money in it and there's especially money in it at the low-budget end. Uh, if you want to yeah. make a low-budget movie and make any money, it basically has to be a horror film or some kind of thriller. Mm. Um, so I have mercenary reasons for getting it, inter- But I have also genuinely gotten interested in it as a medium of expression.
1: I, I, I really like this story, though. It, it felt very cinematic to me. Also, it felt uh, to me like a, like a climax of a story. mm like the, this, this one really great scene that, that I, I I could see, you know, it alluded to what happened before, um, and you can imagine what would happen after. Also, obviously, they have to go. They still have to go find this daughter, presumably. Right. So, so I it it it, it, it was very short and concise and enjoyable, but also gave you a sort of a, a sort of um, forward and then afterward to sort of imagine, which is always fun.
0: Thank you. I'm really glad that you enjoyed it. I gotta say, I enjoy reading it, too. I was slightly dreading it. Uh, I wasn't sure whether it would feel long or feel like a waste of everybody's time. But for me, it went by pretty quickly, and uh, I didn't stumble over the words. I felt pretty good about it.
1: I am also dreading uh, someone playing a song for the podcast.
0: Good. I think one of the services we provide on this podcast (laughs) is that we are honest about how much we dread sharing our work. This is
1: important. I, th- I, th- I think I think you know this this is really us embracing the process. That's here, correct. I think
0: we're embracing the process. Um, I wish that I had read something more unfinished, like just the beginning of something um, that I feel like I didn't embrace the process as much as I could have. Mm. But you have said this song is still in process.
1: so I, I made a I made a short list of a few a few ideas. Um, one of them, That was on the list. It wasn't the one that I was thinking I was going to play, but it's sort of a spooky song. Ooh. And I was wondering while listening to your story if I should play that spooky song. I think definitely. You think so? We just had a big snowfall
0: here in northwestern Connecticut. I guess most of the northeast did. So it's suddenly looking very (laughs) wintry and very Christmassy outside, so I think it's time to get into some Halloween
1: stuff. (laughs) Once again, we're missing the pulse. Completely. We're two months behind. Go for it. We'll do Christmas in March. So here's the song. Sweet. Uh, it's the the it, the working title or the, the title. It's called uh, "Gently." Gently,
2: nice.
1: Sounds like we're in tune here. I'll do my best.
2: They're walking right on
0: but I, I didn't feel like I had the option to not applaud I I, I, I hoped you would <laughs> <laughs> it felt right it felt like the thing that's a cool song thank you it does have a really spooky vibe but it
1: also seems uh, very sad it is it I'm, it um, it started as a lot of my songs do um, about a sort of trying to express um, sort of sad feelings that are hard to express with words. Mm. And mostly I just play um, for stress relief Mm. and a way to sort of um, express feelings. And it really just makes me feel better. That's Um, great. It's and it's so much easier for me than trying to communicate or have a conversation <laughs> with someone. Um, and so, for it's good all, thing you don't have a podcast. <laughs> I'm just
0: gonna speak for uh, your audience right now for your fans. We in your fan club uh, would would are fascinated by the lyrics that we understood, and we would love to understand more. Of it's it's tough because it's cool the way you sing. It it it's kind of mumbly, and mm. it sounds cool. There's a there's a power to it, and the kind of a uh, if I could use a really pretentious word, an insouciance, mm. right? A, a devil may care quality. But um, the the lyrics are cool and they're evocative, and I think it would be, I think the song would be even more powerful if we understood a larger
1: percentage. Well, I'm just out here tilling these spaceships, man. I can't just be <laughs> speaking clearly
0: all the time fun fact the theme song for Firefly was written by Joss Whedon
1: huh which is actually one of the great things about the show it's a great theme song so for a long time while we were sort of doing our little band project I would be uh my morning routine would sort of be to wake up and make some coffee and play uh in the early morning and uh just sort of let that sort of stream of consciousness out and it's very soothing Mm. um What I normally am doing is just, like, sort of fiddling with an acoustic guitar and mumbling to myself. Right. I don't sing out at home. I, like, hide in a corner and I, like, whisper lyrics to my phone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it makes sense. (laughs) You live in a house with other people. You don't necessarily want them to hear. Yeah, I I feel like some people, though, would be more... I don't know. I know know a lot of people who love to play guitar and sing out in their... Well, I know that if I were singing it, you would hear every goddamn consonant, because I, I used to do musical
0: theater. Like Most of the singing that I've done is, is not even rock music. Um, I'm not saying it should be that. I'm not saying it should be musical theater. Uh, but maybe there's a happy medium where it's, it's still, it still has that cool mumbly vibe, um, but also it's a little bit sharper. And partly, it is just a question of how we mic you. Right, mm. if we had a separate vocal mic here and we were live mixing this track, mm. we could put your vocals farther
1: forward, and that would help. Yes. Also, I think my nerves also. With I, I wasn't sure what pitch to be at, and so I just sort of went with the. Um, I suspect that some of the time you are trying to hide behind the
0: mumbling, like you're not <laughs> sure what the lyric is, or you're not sure you like it.
1: Yeah, and that that um, you know. I like to play and sing, but it's, uh, it's it is always a workout to sort of to play and sing at the same time, because mm. I don't really sing like I said when I'm practicing. Yeah, like I'll hum and mumble the words so that I have the idea, and sometimes write the lyrics out, but I don't really perform a song ever. It might be interesting
0: for you in the band context to try to do lead vocals on a song or two without playing, mm. so that all you're focused on is the singing. I wonder what that would do for you. It sounds like a goddamn nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I really like the song. I I love, I really admire your songwriting and I admire the way every song is different. I think that's super impressive. I don't think I've, even though we joke about how using the same chords over and over again, Mm. I don't think I've heard two songs of yours that I would say sound very similar.
1: Yeah. I'm not ever, I'm not trying to like reinvent the wheel and like, so I don't, you know, I, 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 Write songs as sort of as simple as they can be mm. without being something that's the same as something I've already already done. Yeah. So I, I my my it's this has just been the past couple of years when we when we started doing the band to writing music, um, but that idea that it will I my my thought is that it will just sort of naturally build. Mm. Like if I'm working on something and I'm not just repeating myself then inevitably I will keep doing new things. Yeah. And that's where I find my improvement to come from. Not that I'm like trying to learn something new or do something extravagantly successful. Yeah. I
0: I think in a way that is the the happy medium. You do see musical artists who seem to be rehashing the same song over and over again, um, which is obviously not very compelling. And you certainly see musical artists who go out of their way to dramatically reinvent themselves, which can work, but often feels kind of forced and, and feels a little bit like a betrayal uh, of the audience that's already on board with what you're doing. Um, I do think the perfect frame of mind to be in would be you are always interested in finding variation, but you're not constantly starting from zero or trying to pretend like you have no sound or you have no sensibility. Um, I think that's, if you could choose a way to be, that would be the way to be.
1: Well, I have ch- made my decision, and I am that way. I think you are. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I think you're a songwriter with a strong voice, uh,
0: but, but who doesn't just keep tilling the same soil or coming back to the same well.
1: Um, so that's, I think you're perfect, is what well, I'm saying. Well, thank you. I'm glad that the, uh, I like that song, and I'm glad that the sort of it aligned um, with your spooky story.
0: the assignment for this week to watch the pilot episode of auntie donna's big old house of fun which again is an australian sketch comedy show on netflix recommended in a rolling stone interview by weird al yankovic and uh, i think i was the one who gave you that assignment so probably you should kick us off right with auntie donna's for the yeah. record i've
1: now seen the first two episodes okay so, so you, feel free to talk about those too. so you did see the weird al cameo i did it was which is Barely anything. Yeah, but it does exist. <laughs> it does exist. And so I laughed out loud knowing that he was like, hey guys, you should watch this. He That's did, what he sounds like. He did like, recommend
0: right? the show without mentioning that he had a cameo. yet. Yeah. So there,
1: that was perhaps. That's what I do when I recommend this podcast to people. I'm like, it's by far the best surrealistic <laughs> song and story podcast from Northwest Connecticut. It's my friend Keith talking to Anonymous. It's great. um the show uh Obviously started out so hilarious. We yes. watched the first sketch together. Yes, and the first sketch is great. And I almost peed my pants. So funny. It could have been because we had been drinking coffee all morning and I couldn't get up because we were reco- recording, <laughs> but um, the Everything is a Drum, that's the first, it starts right away, the first episode. It starts with Everything's a Drum. So funny. Yes, that's great. Everyone should watch the first five minutes of the first episode of Andy Donald's Bigel House of Fire. I definitely agree with that, Even even if you don't watch any more of it that that first sketch is is really high high caliber it's very good and it takes it takes a turn Mm. without saying anything i guess we
0: won't spoil it probably not okay it starts out as a goofy song about how everything's
1: a drum Mm. and then it, it takes a turn yeah and i mean it really poses the question and it makes you think like is everything really a drum and I like that they left that ambiguous. They left the viewer to decide. I've been hitting all kinds of things. And do you find that
0: they're all drums?
1: Yes. <laughs> well, so uh, that answers that. But I mean, there's always more things to hit. It's, I feel like this is... A, they, they've started me on a lifelong journey to discover if indeed everything is a Well, drum. you would have to hit absolutely everything. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, and indeed, this is basically what the sketch is. We're not going to spoil it. No, but uh, but it's very very funny. And then the the episode continues from there, and it's not pure sketch comedy. It's uh, it does have a sort of loose framework, right? Yeah, like
1: a like a sitcom satire. Yeah, it it's it kind comes of, off that way,
0: right? It's sort of like a fake sitcom. It, it's a it's a sketch show disguised as a parody of a sitcom. Yes,
1: uh, and it's very strange. About three friends living in a house together. Yep. In Australia. Yes. Um, so, um, noticeably a lot of cameos in the first two episodes. True. Um, Weird Al. Weird Al. Um, Ed Helms. Ed Helms. Uh, Kristen Schaal is the voice of the dishwasher. Yes. Very noticeable. (laughs) And Jerry Seinfeld. Correct. Yeah.
0: Great cameo (laughs) from Jerry
1: Seinfeld. (laughs) He doesn't quite look like himself somehow. I don't know how, it must be, I think he's using those, the the stem cell creams. Oh, okay. He's Benjamin Buttoning. That I thought was a pretty good meta joke, where they
0: have Jerry Seinfeld show up as a character on the show. (laughs) He's played by someone who (laughs) in
1: no way resembles Jerry Seinfeld, and who is not doing a Jerry Seinfeld impression. No, he just has like the, 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 the white high tops and blue jeans and, uh. Right, I guess he's sort of in costume, but it's barely a costume. really funny.
0: And then the the thing that makes him Jerry Seinfeld is just that all the characters go, "It's world famous comedian Jerry Seinfeld." Yeah, and they have the the name on, his name on the screen. It's uh, firmly established that in the world of the show, that is Jerry Seinfeld. Oh but there is no attempt made to make him look or
1: sound like. That's fine. So I mean, over. I mean, I don't watch a lot of comedy. I think we've we we delved deeply into that on our last episode or much too deeply two episode, yeah, yeah. Um, I, hopefully I'd cut out of as much of that no one cares <laughs> so I tried to cut out as much as I could but um I really enjoyed watching it I thought I thought it was really funny not always my thing mm. you know I definitely could imagine you know really super stoned 20-somethings watching this religiously
0: yeah it's interesting, I, I expected it to resonate with you a little more mm. than it does because I think of your taste in comedy as being very bizarre. Mm. Um and I like I like bizarre comedy with usually with a kind of identifiable premise. Mm. Uh and then there's such a thing as bizarre comedy that is just uh bizarre. That just indulges in strangeness, uh, to the nth degree. I think of it as sort of the adult swim style. Yes. Uh and I think of that as being kind of up your
1: alley. I, I I like the ridiculous jokes. I like the the concept that um, so there's there's a sketch where they're renaming the Wi-Fi network. Yeah. And he names it poo-poo. Right. And everyone's totally blown away by this. By how clever that is. Yeah, yeah. and I love that idea because you I, you could just picture all the people in the world like, <laughs> check out what I named my Wi-Fi network and it's and it's you know a joke and yeah. they feel very self-satisfied. And so just taking something silly like that and pulling it out and turning it into a sketch is so stupid and admirable, I think.
0: Yeah, I feel like I can really respect what those guys are doing. It seems like they have a very clear vision for what they want their show to be, and they're committed to it, and they're committed to those bizarre performances. Um, it's not entirely my thing, hmm. uh, but I would, I would watch more, happily. And there's always, in each episode that I've seen so far, I've seen two, uh, there's always at least one really funny moment,
1: or a few really funny moments.
0: Um,
1: so yeah, it's good yeah just like the, something I, I like the idea I like to make dumb jokes yeah um and that's part of the fun for me is making them dumb mm-hmm. making them if I can make a joke that's not funny or barely funny that's <laughs> really funny to me yeah and so the concept of like where Ed Helms is on the show and he says that his name is Egg you know? <laughs> and like like, the, like all his, his whole showbiz career, he never realized that people accidentally called him Ed. Right, and his real name is Egg. Yeah. Egg Helms.
0: That's hilarious. And the way they keep milking that premise, yeah.
1: the way they do not let it go, is also funny. So I really respect people who are willing to, especially... I respect people who are willing to do it in conversation like I do. Yeah. Because I feel like I'm constantly making a fool of myself, but I think it's funny. But for people to do that and go into the, to turning it into a run-on joke in a, in a sketch comedy show, like I have so much respect for that.
0: Yeah, it takes a certain kind of courage to go there. <laughs> well, it reminds me of, you know, one of my favorite comedians uh, is Norm Macdonald. Mm-hmm. And he was the Weekend Update anchor when I was the right age to watch SNL on a regular basis. You know, I was in my teens and it was cool to stay up late and it was cool to watch this kind of subversive comedy. Um, Not that SNL is always all that subversive, but Norm MacDonald was. (laughs) He was the guy doing Weekend Update who didn't care if you liked his jokes, who didn't care if he got the laugh. He was the bad boy in that sense. Very much, yeah. Um, and, And in a way, you could find that Really frustrating or irritating because of course it's his job to get up there and make jokes right so if if he doesn't care then he shouldn't be doing it on paper it's objectionable in practice (laughs) it's so funny uh the way that he the way that he does that the way that he kind of snubs the audience and insists on following through on whatever dumb premise he's come up with i find it hysterically entertaining and I kind of love the purity of it, too, that he, it's just his sense of humor mm-hmm. and, and love it or leave it. And he's, he's said interesting things about it, too. He, he said one of the things he always wanted to avoid when he was doing Weekend Update was applause.
1: Let's talk about The Queen's Gambit. We said we would, and we're going to, you know, if nothing else on this podcast, we might do the things we (laughs) say. If there's one (laughs) thing we stand for, it's occasionally following through on our commitments, (laughs) but also
0: not. Uh, The Queen's Gambit is a popular television show on the Netflix platform. And so we talked about this on the Lost episode. We did. We've already had a conversation about The Queen's Gambit. Now we're pretending like we haven't had
1: that conversation so that we can feel fresh and new and excited. Well, I thought maybe we could try to have a totally different conversation about it. Oof. That sounds challenging. So ready. Did you notice the outro scene that her costume was she was dressed as the white queen? No. So in the last the last uh scenes of of the show she has like a long white coat and like a white sort of beret with a pom-pom on top. Oh. And I was I was sort of like, okay, like that's, you know, a little bit cheesy, but it was it was a cool visual. That did not occur to me. She's actually dressed like a chess piece. Mm. And the white chess piece, which always goes, that's... I oh, believe, it's taking the initiative. And I believe that's something, you know, like when she first is learning to play Mr. Scheibel, he's white because he's the the person in power. Right. In that If by the end she's white it means
0: that she's taking He it
1: lets her it. play once once he views her as an equal on setting, then they take turns. Ah right. But but when he's teaching her, he he takes the first move because he's you know, he's in the, that position of power in the, in the match. But in the competition they take turns. Um, right but it's the the white piece always goes first but at the end she like is the white the white queen which is just kind of an interesting visual. I definitely did not catch that and we didn't talk about it
0: no but I'm not committing to not saying anything I said last time because uh, how do I put this that would be stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you said that last time uh, yeah well're I'm telling you we're gonna repeat that conversation No well the, the the thing is though the the thing that you just said leads perfectly into my main point about the show Uh, I think that's a fascinating piece of symbolism to dress her up like the White Queen and to imply thereby that she is acting first or taking initiative or has gained power in her own life I wish that there were other than symbolic ways to tell that story (laughs) I wish that that story were somehow uh, weaved into the fabric I wish that the show had a story I guess is what Mm. I'm saying Um, I felt pretty strongly like the 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 motor that kept the story moving was constantly breaking down and sometimes (laughs) running backward. Mm. Uh, I never really was sure where I was in the narrative or what story was being told, and when I got to the end of the show, I still didn't really understand what story they were trying to tell. If it's true in that last scene that she's suddenly taking control of her life, which does seem like what they're trying to convey, why? What has enabled her to do that? She's she's just come off of a big victory in a chess tournament, but what she needs in her life is not to win. She's been winning. What she needs in her life is to find something outside of chess, maybe even some human connection, hmm. um, that can be meaningful to her and, and give her a life that's broader than just competition. Hmm. So I don't understand how beating someone in a chess match would empower her to discover... Uh, And there is a way to tell that story where that victory leads her uh, to a broader view of the world. But they don't tell that story. They don't tell any story.
1: They gesture at a story that you could assemble out of the pieces they give you. I mean, I guess they do allude to that because in that final scene also, she goes to play chess in the park in the Russian park there with all the old chess players. And I didn't really think anything of it. I was sort of you know, you know, I knew the show was ending and this was the final bit and it was a little bit cheesy. But I guess maybe that was that was the 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 thing they were going for. She's going out to talk to these people and to play a chess game, presumably in the park for fun. Right. For the first time since the beginning of the movie. Right. Show.
0: And but there are two problems with that. I agree. (laughs) <laughs> I agree. there are two problems with that uh, one is there is no way that game will be fun for her playing some random guy she's the best chess player in the world she's just proven that she's the best chess player in the world it's not even fun for her to play other top level chess players there's no way it'll be fun for her to play some random guy in a park in Russia uh, and number two the, the way that she gets to that moment of taking agency in whatever way she does is not articulated If the victory frees her to explore a a life that's more authentic or more enjoyable or more meaningful to her, it is not at all clear how or why that happens. I think the story might be more meaningful if she lost that climactic match and then were forced to consider what else is available other than the constant victory. In chess, um, I think that that, that, I, that would be more believable to me that mm-hmm. she would need to find something else in her life because she didn't win. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's definitely not. It's definitely not explained. And I, I, I did watching. I sort of expected there to be more of a of an outro or an epilogue or something. Um, but there, well, you know, it really ends. You know, after that match, basically.
0: I guess I'm in a weird position with regard to this show. And I'm sorry that I'm repeating myself.
1: uh, No, I I was, we can totally repeat ourselves. I I can't help it. I really can't. I was just, we we, we, we said opinions on the show. Uh, We can repeat ourselves. I was just messing around. I don't know what else to do. I don't have a
0: cool observation about (laughs) symbolism like you had. So I don't know what else to do. Other than rehab. No, I feel like I'm in a weird position because this show is massively popular, right? It's a huge, huge, huge runaway hit beyond anyone's expectations. And I can respect and appreciate a lot of things about the show. Like it looks slick and it, the 60s stuff is cool and the performances are largely really good. Not without exception, but largely really good and Anya Taylor-Joy is very, very appealing. Um, and, the, and the chess stuff is cool. The competition is fun. Those scenes are exciting. Um, so there are a lot of things that I can like, like about the show. And any criticism that I have of it has to be wrong on some level, because it is connecting with people. It is working at the most basic level. People are watching it and they're enjoying it. Um, but for me, it was a very frustrating experience. Uh, for me, I kept feeling like the story, the, the story was pr- proceeding in fits and starts. There were constantly flashbacks mm. to her past, which didn't feel like they were moving anything forward the competition stories were pretty repetitive um the 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 sort of struggle with uh addiction wasn't quite developed it was there but it, it that never became the main st- I didn't think there was a main story mm. uh, and so I get to the end of this whole thing and I feel like all of those ingredients could be in a cool movie or show uh but well, it's what you were saying earlier—you want to see something with a narrative,
1: uh, yeah? But not this. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. No, it's interesting. I and I was just thinking that also. I do really enjoy seeing a narrative, but I guess sometimes I don't. Something about this—it was—it was the competition that was appealing to me. Yeah. Um, and and the different ways. That they uh, the different creative ways they showed the competitions. Yeah, um, you know they used different sort of editing styles and different storytelling styles. I think for for to make each one a little bit different. Um, I mean, if they didn't, it would have been the most boring show in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, but something about the 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 competition and and. The mechanics of the game that they show you was enough to keep me interested. The visuals and and just the I found the competitions compelling. Yeah, and that that was um, I definitely agree that the storytelling was lacking in a lot of ways. I think I think um, it could have delved a lot deeper into any one of the sort of side stories, the backstory, um, with her mother mm-hmm. where the heck her father is yeah you know maybe one of the love stories I think I said this last time and I'll say it again I feel
0: like it should have been either a 2 hour movie with a with a clear three act structure or it should have been like a three season TV series or a five season TV series it felt like there was too much story are too many story elements uh, to, to make it one tight narrative, but not enough story elements that we care about the subplots in and of themselves. The, the feeling that I got watching the show was that we were sort of glancing over a, a long period of time, but the show takes place over many, many, many years, mm-hmm. and we were sort of getting
1: various highlights from that yeah. time. Uh, it did read like a movie in that way where the where you're cutting out chunks of time because it works for a movie because you have to if you want to span a huge span of time in a movie yeah. you have to cut out big chunks absolutely like it's the only it's the only way and that's why it's sort of like you're used to seeing that in a film maybe more so than in uh, episode four yeah I guess to me it felt
0: like a, a It felt like a really long first cut of a movie, where the assignment, if you were the editor, would be to take that seven hours of the show and get it down to two hours. And I think if someone did that, if someone cut it down to two hours and made it uh, one, one story, that might be really compelling. Again... Well, I'm wrong because everybody thinks this
1: is a great show. <laughs> well, so obviously, I'm I'm missing something. I think we're just we're in this like we're in this like TV um, renaissance here, yeah. where it's just like people are looking for these digestible doses of stories. Yeah. Where putting something in 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 series form versus movie form might be the difference between you know a couple million people watching it. Yes. You know, they'll look at something and be like, an hour and a half, I don't have that. But if you, if you set them out 45-minute episodes, they'll sit there and watch all of them in a row.
0: Yeah, it's really weird. <laughs> I see this in myself, too. Because yeah. Yeah, a feature film is an hour and a half. An episode of The Queen's Gambit, some of them are 45 minutes. Some of them are over an hour. Mm-hmm. So we're saying, I don't have an hour and a half, but I do have an hour and seven minutes. And then I have another 53. <laughs> it's so it's not just that the cumulative amount of time is greater. It's also that the individual units are not that much shorter than a movie. Yeah. Uh, it's very, very, very strange. But I feel that way too. It's, yeah. it's hard for me to sit down and watch a movie we're, these
1: days. We're so stupid, us yes. humans.
0: It's because we're extremely stupid.
1: Yeah, uh, it yeah it's a weird moment in the whole
0: media landscape. And obviously, the, the pandemic is... is fueling that although it was already it was already happening that tv is the new movies and netflix is the new tv
1: and movies is the new newspaper uh,
0: yeah well yeah it is it is starting to feel that way which is very sad to me because i love movies and i make movies and i'd mm-hmm. like to feel there's a future in movies uh but sometimes it it seems like that's not very likely, And I guess... Yeah, I guess... I hadn't really thought about it this way before. But my, my feeling about The Queen's Gambit is... Ten years ago, it would have been a movie. Mm-hmm. And it would have been much stronger as a movie. But it has to be a miniseries now... Because that's how you make money. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's... It's not a bad thing that miniseries are big business now. It's because... There are stories that are well suited to that. There are stories that really want the seven hours. Mm-hmm. This isn't one of them. So we stretched it out to seven hours because
1: mm-hmm. we we want that much engagement from the audience. Well, it's interesting to feel like it, it's stretched out but also is lacking in depth of things that could have been it's a, elaborated It's a weird medium length.
0: length. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a weird medium length. I think this story could have taken much longer or much shorter.
1: I think the length that it is is doing it a a disservice. I mean, I think it was engaging. I think the, the, the score was done really well and Mm. visually striking and the competition, uh, pieces had suspense and, you know, it had a strong leading lady. And I think, you know, it would, it had definitely had the sort of hot point elements to take people through it. Um, you know probably a lot of people who 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 could care less about any type of chess yeah yeah i i think I,
0: I i agree with all that or at least i agree with most most of that the thing the thing that's perplexing to me is uh i i tend to believe that uh that the audience wants a strong forward moving narrative so I tend to believe that good music and costumes and acting and lighting aren't enough to engage the average audience member. I'm sort of a cinephile. I'll, I'll watch a European movie without much plot and sometimes enjoy it. I don't consider myself a hardcore film buff, but I'm, you know, kind of a film buff. So, so I'm watching have...
1: hardcore European <laughs> films I'm doing You everything. know what I'm saying!
0: Um... No, I feel like I should have a higher tolerance for artsy nonsense than the average person. And yet my feeling about The Queen's Gambit is this is too artsy for me mm. and, and lots of normal people. And I don't say normal people with any disrespect. I, I, I mean that with the greatest respect. I think normal people are the greatest people in the world. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> definitely <laughs> not including you. Uh, no, I mean, I think the average <laughs> audience member is who movies are made for and should be made for. But it's strange to me that the average audience member, in this context, has a higher tolerance for what seems to me like artsy indulgence
1: than I do. I don't think, and maybe it's not as artsy as you think. You know, maybe it's maybe it's um, you know maybe a lot of it is the costumes, the fashion that can be very enticing to to uh, uh, a larger audience. Yeah. Um, period piece fashion. I do recall while watching this, Allie would remark on the outfits. Yeah. As as each outfit developed, or the decor in the home. So things like that are, you know, artistically directed, but they're, you know, they're uh, popular. Right. They're not artsy to behold.
0: I guess I just don't understand how... This may be just because I'm not a fashion person. I don't understand how costume and interior decorating could hold your attention for 45 minutes.
1: I can understand how it would hold your attention for for
0: two minutes or five.
1: But I've learned to not presume to know anyone. That's very wise. Even myself. Deep. I wrote a song (laughs) about it, actually. Shut up, Will. Will, you did the song. Put the guitar away.
0: We should be wrapping up actually. Yeah, uh, let's let's do that. We should be giving each other homework assignments.
1: Yeah, so I, I, I really I really enjoy um, the the homework section of 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 the project. It really keeps me going. Yeah. It gives me something to look forward to in the dark, sleepless nights. Uh-huh. I'm like, well at least I can make Keith proud by reading this <laughs> Lovecraft story. I mean proud is a strong word, but go on.
0: Somebody's got to till these spaceships. (laughs) Get along, little teleporter. I think our podcast has its breakout character now. (laughs) Spacey McGee. Spacey McGee. Spacey McGee and the podcast gang.
1: Sorry, go on. Um, So as I was saying, um, that's all I had to say. So you,
0: uh, last time around... You had assigned me to check out a Netflix show called You're the
1: Worst? It's not Netflix. Sorry. Um, So, uh, yeah, we were having conversations about music, which we thankfully didn't get into this time. Oh, thank God. Next time, perhaps. Um, And so, I know you're a big Ben Folds fan. Love Ben Folds. And you like comedy. Yes. And you like British people doing comedy. Yes. (laughs) And so... This show, uh, it's on FXX. What the hell is that? FXX. Is <laughs> that F- a real? You're making this up. Triple um, XXXF. <laughs> oh, now I know what you're talking about. Um, on Hulu, uh, you can. Uh, that's that's where I watched it. It's okay. also on Amazon. Okay. Through FX, uh, you're the worst. You're the worst. Um, and the two episodes that. Ben Folds appears in... He also appears in the finale briefly, but don't don't watch that. Okay. Obviously, that would be ridiculous. I will not do that. Uh, season 3, episode 7. Okay. And season 4, episode 10. Got it. So he came a whole year later, presumably. He came back, and he's at it again. <laughs> <laughs> he's incorrigible. What a rapscallion.
0: Uh, I assume he must... Be friends with someone who works on that show. I think he's
1: enemies with all of them. Oh, okay. Well, that would explain it too. He, he did it out of I'm spite. I'm not letting this go. I'll be back. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so watch those, um, and and let me know what you think of the show. Yep. And of end of the bed and folds part. I will check that out. I am tempted to recommend to you
0: something Joss Whedon related, because earlier on you said you were not crazy about Firefly.
1: Did we, was that on the air? I think so.
0: <laughs> yes, definitely. Take two. <laughs> Firefly. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think maybe I will suggest, and I think I own this. If I don't own this, then we will edit this part out, and I will recommend something else. But I was going to suggest that you read Joss Whedon's run on Astonishing X-Men, the comic book.
2: Hmm.
0: This is from maybe ten years ago. Uh, he did a famous run. As the writer of that comic book. Cool. Just because he's a fan and he loves the X-Men. Uh, and it's actually one of my favorite uh, comic book series of all time. It's the, the illustrations of by John Cassidy, who's a very wonderful comic book artist. And uh, I really, really love uh, that whole series. So I'm going to lend hmm. that
1: to you. Did he write an Avengers movie or two?
0: He wrote and directed two Avengers, the first two Avengers movies. Right, books. right, cool. Yeah. And I, I really like his writing. I think it's, uh, especially the dialogue. But not just dialogue. He's brilliant with plot as well. I think he's, I think he's one of the best screenwriters uh, in the world.
1: Wow. Yeah. Very cool. I really do. I think he's an amazing writer. And we just came upon that totally randomly talking about your story. Is that right? Yeah, how did we get on Firefly? I was talking about the sort of colloquial "Yeehaw!" Oh. Fire up the nuclear reactor. <laughs> <laughs> your your paraphrases of Joss Whedon, they lack some of the magic. I mean, when was this show from? It's
0: from the early
1: 2000s? Yeah, so basically, it's been a while. Forever ago, sure. And I was high, sure. And so, and so, this, he did a run in which version of the X Men that you're recommending?
0: It's called Astonishing X Men. Okay. It was a new title that was launched by him and John
1: Cassaday. Oh, cool! And how many? How many issues? Do a, you know? a bunch. And I'm. How many am I supposed to read? Well, it's a comic book. It goes pretty fast. I think it's collected in
0: three or four volumes, and each volume will be six issues. Uh, so it's a decent amount
1: of material, but it's it's a comic book. Okay. It won't take you that long. Cool. Uh, I I haven't read a comic in a long time. Well, I'm going to ask you to read a comic. I look for. I really want to.
0: And I want our listeners to read this comic as well. It's very very good. If you don't like comics, you have to read it anyway. Yeah. Because it's just it's that good. Uh, I I I feel this impulse to quote an actual line from Firefly as a sort of counter narrative to this horrible travesty <laughs> of you trying to remember what characters sound like. On Firefly. I mean, uh, one of the main character's famous lines very simple, but he says, uh, I aim to misbehave, which I think is a good line. Mm. There's another classic moment. Uh, th- there's a classic moment where he, Mal Reynolds, the main character, has a villain at his mercy. He's got a gun trained on him, and he's finally turned the tables on this villain. And, uh, and Mal Reynolds says, they say the mark of a good man. No, wait, I got it wrong. I got it wrong. Go back. Take two. Take two. Uh, Mal Reynolds says, they say the mark of a great man is mercy. And then he shoots the guy in the leg. And then he says, guess I'm just a good man. And he shoots him again. And then he goes, well, I'm okay. (laughs) So that's...
1: That's great. That's good. That's a good one. You know, and I, I would have to watch it again, and maybe I will. You know, it could be something with the acting, or that I wasn't expecting it. it not necessarily the way that it's written, obviously. I maintain that it's a great show, but you don't have to agree. that's and that's see this differently.
0: That's, you know, where we're at. It's definitely, the way that it's written is affected. And his style of dialogue is a little bit affected. Mm. Um, but for me, it, it really works. For me, it it takes it to another level. Where instead of just being serviceable dialogue or even clever dialogue, it has this distinctive twist. Mm -hmm. It has a certain kind of English. When I say English, I mean spin, Mm -hmm. but also English. Yeah, Good double meaning there that I didn't even intend. A pool reference? I guess, yeah. I guess I made a pool reference. Because why not?
1: Uh, Next time we'll be playing uh, snooker. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't that be good? Now there was no set of play. All
0: right, so uh, we should wrap this up. We've been recording for way too long. Do you have any concluding thoughts that you'd like to leave us with? Do you hate it when
1: I ask you this question? You'd think I would expect it by now. Yeah. Um, I hope I don't die driving through the Arctic tundra that it takes to get back to my house. I also hope you don't die well. I live right down the road. Yeah.
0: It's a five-minute drive. <laughs> Not you. I suspect you'll be okay. But you never know, and I, and I hope I hope that goes well for you. Uh, Great. Well, this has been a pleasure. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening in. We've been Will and Keith Embrace the Process.
1: Yeah, email us with your uh, comments and personal photographs. Will and Keith Embrace the Process at gmail.com.
0: Wow, we've never said that on air before. That's correct. Will and Keith Embrace the Process at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We love you, especially you, Nick.